And then on the on the flip side, I guess I guess this becomes natural to me because I've been around so many high performing people, whether it's in in business, sport, athletes, whatever it is. People like would hear hear our conversation and they might think like, "Wow, this guy is just like always confident. He always knows what's going on. He's just totally okay." But like that's completely wrong. Like every athlete, every high performer in any industry, no matter who they are, goes through the same thing that everybody else goes through. There are plenty of times where Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan would have self doubt. Like that, that is as much as you might not think they do, they do. You just have to figure out how to deal with that. So I guess for me, it's like people are surprised because like, oh, you seem so confident. I'm like, I lay in bed at night with anxiety, just like you. (laughs) And just figure out how to deal with it. We're doing good. (laughs) Welcome to the Bounce Forward Podcast. I'm Michael Leach author, speaker, and coach. And in this show, I sit down for unscripted conversations with audacious athletes, activists, adventurers, and performers, sharing their inspiring stories of grit, grace, courage, and perseverance. These casual conversations are as diverse as our guests, diving deep into what it takes to bounce back from injury, illness, or setback in pursuit of becoming one's truest and strongest self. So pull up a chair, get on the trainer, or just kick back and listen in as I sit down with these bold, daring, and passionate humans, pushing the limits of what their mind and body can achieve, inspiring listeners to bounce forward with resilience and fortitude. Don't call it a comeback, because they never went anywhere. To bounce forward. To bounce forward. Yeah. I am so excited to welcome you to episode one of the Bounce Forward podcast. This has already been a wild ride filled with ups and downs, trials and tribulations, tremendous technical difficulties and pivots, but we're right where we're supposed to be. I'm so thrilled about these first guests that I've had the opportunity to sit down and talk with. And since my sit down with Connor Fields on Friday, was one of the smoothest, and since he's such a big name, I decided to come out swinging. In Connor's words, the Las Vegas native, you've got to bet big to win big. So we're going big with episode one, sharing the story of the golden one, Connor Fields. We've got some really special people coming to you in these first 10 episodes, and I couldn't be more enthusiastic about each and every one of them. But in honor of Kobe and Gianna on this 2-8, the 8th day of February, I thought it was fitting to start the show with a legend on two wheels who references Kobe multiple times and definitely has that Mamba mentality on and off the bike. I hope you all enjoy this first episode, and if you would, I'd be grateful if you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform, and if you'd go the extra mile and write us a positive review, I'd be humbled and honored. We've got some big episodes coming your way, and I can't think of anyone better to tip us off out of the gate, flying down the ramp and pedaling to that first turn than Connor Fields himself. 
He's one of the most accomplished American bike riders of all time, and his story is one that I'm confident you'll find inspiring, uplifting, and the embodiment for what it looks like to bounce forward in the truest sense. All right, welcome to the show, Connor Fields. Let's ride today. It's such a pleasure to share this time and space with you. It's a cold one. It was 14 degrees here today in Bozeman, Montana. How's it in Las Vegas, Nevada? It's a bit warmer than 14 degrees. It's sunny and about 560, <laughs> but um, it did snow last week here, which is very rare. Wow. And uh, you got some funny photos of cactus with uh, snow on top of it. Nice. I love it. I love it. Well, let's start with an introduction. Uh, I had the pleasure of hearing Connor speak back in November at the USA Cycling Coaching Summit in Colorado Springs, where Connor was our keynote speaker. As a speaker and motivational presenter myself, I was impressed with and inspired by Connor's message, his stage presence, his candor, vulnerability, and courage while sharing his very inspiring story. Connor Fields is a three-time Olympian, a two-time world champion, a Pan American Games gold medalist, winner of the Red Bull Revolution, and he's the first American to win an Olympic BMX gold medal, which he did at the 2016 Rio Games. He turned pro at the tender age of 15, and at 17 years of age, Connor became the youngest rider to ever podium at, BMX, at the BMX World Cup. He's been on the Wheaties box, which is what impressed my daughter the most, Connor, about your story. And he's celebrated throughout the BMX and cycling community at large as one of the all-time greats to ever race on two wheels. For those of you who don't follow the BMX circuit, there's a good chance you may still remember Connor from the Tokyo Olympic Games in 2021. He went into his semi-final heat on pace to fight it out for another Olympic medal. But just moments after a fiery start, Connor went down in a horrific crash. Connor sustained multiple injuries, including broken ribs, a collapsed lung, torn shoulder and bicep ligaments, as well as brain swelling and four life-threatening brain hemorrhages. This traumatic brain injury would leave Connor fighting for his life, a world away from family and friends in a Tokyo hospital, representing the beginning of perhaps his most compelling story of endurance and perseverance. Today, still rather fresh off the announcement of his retirement from professional racing, Connor is sharing his story and his uplifting message of resilience and fortitude. And is yet another inspiring human who we've been fortunate enough to get on the show, who I believe truly embodies what it looks like to bounce forward. So Connor, before we dive into the deep end and, and learn more about your story, uh, your grit, your, your fight, I'd like to start how I start every conversation with a tip of the hat to my mentor, my counselor, and my friend, Dr. John Wimberly. John and I have worked a lot over the years on the topic of acceptance. Dr. Wimberly likes to say there's only three solutions to any problem, change it, leave it, or accept it. And one of my favorite Wimberly-isms goes something like this. He says, acceptance is allowing reality to be as it is without requiring it to be different. You don't have to like it. You could hate the circumstances, but there comes a point in time where we often have to 
accept and embrace our reality for what it is. So I'd love to hear how this resonates with you, Connor, as far as something you've been forced to or perhaps chosen to accept in your life of late. Well, I guess first off, before we get into that, I have to give a tip of the hat to you for that introduction. That was fantastic. I might have to bring you around with me to, you know, anywhere I go and you can just introduce me because that, that was that was great. Um, I was, bring, hey, bring me on circuit. I, I'd love to be on the Connor Field circuit. <laughs> I'll be your Bundini Brown, your hype man any day. <laughs> as far as that, I guess I'll give you a serious one and then a less serious one. I'll start with the less serious one. Uh, I turned 30 a couple months ago. So I'm having to accept that I am now 30. And that was the first birthday that I ever had that I woke up and I wasn't excited on my birthday. You know, you, on your birthday, it's great. You get lots of phone calls and you get to talk to a lot of your friends and people reach out and you get some presents and it's, you know, it's usually a good day. Uh, but on that day, I just lay there in bed thinking to myself, wow, I'm 30. You know, I just, it just, it comes so fast. So uh, I'm accepting that. Uh, but then on a more serious note, and you kind of just jog my thought process with that introduction. I've had to accept that I am not known primarily for my accomplishments and what I've achieved and, you know, maybe the, the, the positivity or the good things that I've done in this world. I am known for being that guy who almost died at the Olympics. And if you type my name into Google, that's what you see. And so that's, Kind of like what you were saying before, I don't really have a choice. Can't change it. I'm not going to run from it. So I just have to accept it. And I guess I'm that guy who almost died at the Olympics. I also won the Olympics, but I, also, I almost died. And that's what I'm known for. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that, Connor. I, I would say that's certainly a, a matter of perspective and something that you certainly have to sit and, and wrestle with. And I appreciate it being something that you feel the need to accept. And I can just tell you, my daughter, who's a mountain bike racer and a swimmer, she remembers that race. She's not a BMX person. That's not her background. But when we watched your retirement video the other day, we've watched a lot of Connor Fields videos and, and prep for this. Uh, that That's certainly not how that 15-year-old youngster thinks of you. It's, it's, it's definitely not how I see you. I think what you've achieved on the bike is so immense and we're going to dive into that and one of my favorite books that i've read my daughter uh, i don't know if you this is your parents would know this book you probably won't know this book as a 30 year old young gun that's you you got a lot of a lot of living and inspiring ahead of you uh, I'm, I'm i'm appreciative of being 40 plus and the wisdom uh, that that i've been able to uh find over these years of struggles and the the struggles the juicy stuff for sure and you've had so much success at such a young age and i mean i really look forward to seeing what you're able to accomplish in the next next 10 15 years you got a long ride ahead of you uh, this book my friend flicka was written on our family ranch in southern wyoming and the sequel is called thunderhead and in one of those books the, the son is really struggling at one point. And the father says to him, son, it's not life that happens to you that matters. It's how you react to it. And, and when you're in a sport like you are, uh, an action sport that is volatile and gnarly, and we're going to talk about that for people who don't know BMX racing, just go look it up, folks. Go online and type up 
BMX Olympic race 2016 Connor Fields. It's fast and furious. And as somebody who's an endurance mountain bike racer, I look at what you're doing and I mean, it gives me chicken skin. It's a gnarly event. So your crash was a horrific one, no doubt. But what inspires me and I think inspired all those coaches at that summit, and I imagine anybody who has the opportunity to hear you speak um, is your vulnerability. It is that ability, that courage that you have. Um, it's the same courage that I, I'm guessing allowed you to line up on that start line year after year after year where there's so much vulnerability. There's such a great chance of success. There's a, a shot at failure. You, you have a great line. You said in, in something I, I either watched or read recently, some to the degree if there's 33 riders in these races and only three of them get to get to celebrate only three of them get to be on the podium yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look yeah. at the olympics there's 32 athletes that compete three people are going home over the moon best day of their life and 29 of them are going yeah. home devastated yeah. and you know to a lesser extent you know i kind of look at the olympics there's kind of um there's two different types of athletes when you go to the olympics or i guess the world championships or any major event there's the athletes that just making it to the event was their goal. They know that they have zero chance of getting on the podium, right? Somebody has to get 20th place at every event. And in most events, if you think of like swimming, track and field, things like that, if your best time is not even close to the 15 other athletes you're competing against, you kind of know going in that, okay, I have no chance at a medal. I'm just going to enjoy this experience, do my best. And maybe your goal is to get 15th place. Right. So yeah. for them, and when you're at the games, you see those athletes, they're the ones taking photos, having a great time, look completely relaxed. And then there's the other group of athletes. This is a smaller group, five to 10 athletes in every event or five to 10 teams in a team event who think or believe that if they do their best and they execute well, they have a shot at a medal. So they're not there just to compete. They're there to to come home with a trophy. And so those athletes, the ones who don't perform or they get, someone has to get fourth, right? That is devastating. And so I've been on both sides of that. Um, I got seventh place, but uh, in my first Olympics, but I was the number one seed in the final. I was the favorite going in all dawn. Like I, for all you know, intents and purposes should have won, but I got seventh and it was an absolute failure. And I was not happy and I was devastated. And so I've been on, I've, I've experienced the range of outcomes here. So um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's just up to each individual athlete, kind of what your goal is and what you're, what you're looking for out of it. it. It's very clear just going back and watching all those videos from 2012, 2016, I'm imagining you had pretty high expectations going into that semifinal so close to to the final, uh, and we'll definitely get into that. Uh, but I, I would love to take a little step back uh, to that seven-year-old Connor Fields, that flyer that your mom saw at the bike shop. I think you had a flat tire that was getting fixed. Um, tell us about where you were living at that time. And I love the story. I love the story about you going and checking out the, the, the track, seeing the BMX scene, coming back the next week and riding in the car with your mom your dad with the helmet on, you were locked in already before you even got there. So tell us a little bit about those beginnings. 
So I guess growing up, I did what most kids do, which is try a bunch of different sports. I played t-ball, flag football, basketball, did, did all that. Um, I learned how to ride a bike when I was six years old, just in front of my house. And then I loved riding my bike. I would pop wheelies, jump off curbs, you know, kind of a normal kid thing. And one day, like you said, my, my mom found a flyer at a bike shop that was advertising a local racetrack about 20 minutes away. She thought, oh, this seems cool. My son likes to ride his bike. Maybe we should go check it out. So we just went and watched the racing. And uh, I guess, you know, I, I was seven. I don't remember it. But my parents told me that my eyes were this big and I was loving it. And I, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was begging to go back. So the next week we went back. And like you said, I had my helmet on and my full pads on everything in the car before we even left the house. I was so excited. And, um, did my first event. And... I continued to do other sports for about three, four years. And then that kind of became a situation where I was leaving basketball practice early to make it to the races, or I was having to choose one or the other and I would always choose racing. So my parents said, it's not fair to your teammates. It's not fair to um, everybody else for you to leave halfway through a game. So I kind of just specialized in racing. But at this point, DMX was not in the Olympics. It was not a collegiate sport. It was really just a hobby sport. I guess I hate to say the word dead end, but there wasn't really like a pathway of where you advanced. Um, but I loved it and I was super passionate about it. So my parents, um, to their credit, they didn't try to steer me in any direction. They just allowed me to follow my dreams and my passions. Um, and yeah, and then lucky for them and lucky for me, it became an Olympic sport and the whole thing. So it worked out. <laughs> that says, that says a lot about uh, your folks and, and their, their parenting. I, I met with uh, a friend, a coach, somebody who I've coached with for years, a heck of an athlete, uh, a ACC or actually big East defensive player of the year back in the the nineties, early 2000 basketball player. And we we're talking about our kids and talking about how much, she should push them here, or push them there. And uh, one of the, I think, best pieces of advice I can give any parent and I think any coach is to meet your kid or your athlete where they're at. And uh, it sounds like your your parents uh, did just that. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll throw in one other thing, too, just for any parents listening, because I do get asked um, a lot of times by parents, you know, what advice I would give to them. And um what my, my parents did that I am so thankful for is they never forced me to train. They never forced anything on me. They just gave me the opportunity, but it all came down to me and I had to, to want to do it. So I never got burned out. Like I was around plenty of kids whose parents yelled and screamed to force them to do things when they didn't want to do it. And at a young age and, and that, that never ends well. Um, and the other thing is that they really harped on was, all of the real life skills, right? So sportsmanship, discipline, uh, accountability, you know, the things like that that are going to be transferable to any real life situation is what they really cared about. They didn't care if I won or lost. They cared if I did my best. They cared if I shook the other athletes, fit hands at the finish line. They cared that I treated my equipment well and that I kept my bike clean. You know, the th things like that, um, which I'm very thankful for because we have a great relationship now. There's no, you know, I don't, I know plenty of, I'm sure being around sport, you do too. Parents who are too hard on the kids and it either makes the kid hate the sport or hate the parent. Um, yeah. So there's none of that, but I'm very thankful for, for, for what they did. But I, I, 
I was just going to say, but I think you didn't have much to worry about me because I always worked my butt off. And they, that was you, <laughs> they just let me go. You were such a hard worker. You were all in, to me, you just described what it looks like for a parent to meet their kids where they're yeah. at. If they're all in, you're all yeah. in. You know, um, uh, another thing I will say is for folks who don't know Connor Fields and haven't met him in person, uh, he looks like he could play linebacker or small forward for the running rebels <laughs> for, for UNLV. I mean, th this guy's not your typical, typical cyclist. Like he's built like a brick. Uh, he's, he's a real strong, strong, uh, how tall are you, Connor? I'm um, six, six foot six foot, and I'm a bit longer now than when I was racing, but 200 yeah. pounds racing, but BMX yeah. on like endurance cycling sport, um, you need yeah. a lot of power and strength, you know, yeah. you need, um, power repeatability. So you need to be able to produce peak force over and over and over again, but you don't need to go for that long. A long race for us is 45 seconds. So we don't have to worry too much. It's all power to weight. So we don't have to worry too much about carrying more weight as long as we're increasing power alongside it. So, you know, I would be in the gym three days a week, squatting, deadlifting, benching, like, you know, meathead stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. I've yeah, I've seen you in the gym. I've seen seen some videos of the gym. You're definitely throwing the weight around. So while we're on that topic, talk to us a little bit about BMX for those who don't know. Mm -hmm. Besides the fact that it's such a gnarly discipline and it's not for the faint of heart, and the pace is so fast and furious, and sometimes you may race seven, eight times in a day with 15 minutes in between. It's a different kind of fitness, as you just touched upon, than say what I do or Rose Grant, who we had on yesterday. Uh, Gwendolyn Gibson, Rose Grant's racing the Leadville 100. Gwendolyn Gibson's an XCO racer in that hour and 20 minute discipline. And instead, yours seems like it's all about redlining, it's hitting that heart rate max and trying to, it's that repeatability of trying to get that to come down as quickly as possible before you go back at it. So tell us a little bit about BMX racing. Yeah, I guess uh, we're back to the very beginning. So BMX uh, was, I guess, invented in the 1960s in Southern California. Um, so kids would watch their favorite motorcycle racers, and then they would grab their Schwinn Stingrays and their, their old bikes, and they would make their own little homemade racetracks out of dirt, race their bikes around it, and BMX was born. And BMX stands for Bicycle Motocross. So it's essentially motocross on a bicycle. Um, over the years, it continued to evolve and develop and change. And then as bikes continue to evolve and change and get better, um, they could go faster. The bikes wouldn't break if you jumped super far, things like that. So the tracks got bigger and um, the athletes got better, just like any sport. And then when they put BMX into the Olympic Games, they wanted to figure out a way to make it more visually stimulating. Right. So I guess the best way to, to kind of make an equivalent is if you watch the X Games, nowadays they have the mega ramp, which is that massive, like five story ramp that they come down, jump a hundred feet. Like just it's bananas. Um, so they tried to do something like that BMX where they added our starting hill, uh, standardized three stories high speeds are 45 miles an hour. Jumps are 50 feet in length so that um, when people watch it, if you're uneducated, you don't know anything about it at a minimum, you're thinking, holy smokes, these guys are nuts, right? So um, that's kind of how it became what it is today. Uh, there's that Olympic style, but then there's still the traditional style, which is a bit smaller. That's where the kids are still going to start, and that's where a lot of the, the local racing is done. But it's very simple to understand. There's a starting gate, there's jumps, there's turns, and there's a finish line. The first person across the finish line wins. 
And pretty much the only rule is you can't kick people or push people over. But other than that, it's full contact. It's, yeah, it's just kind of a free-for-all out there. It looks like a free-for-all. We watched one of your rubbing is racing videos, and it, it seems like it's a it's a real physical endeavor. There's got to be a lot of trust. The bike handling skills that you all have is mind-boggling. I can see where you really need that explosive power and that that strength and balance and why all that gym work is is so important. So um, let's let's jump forward here a little bit. Let's jump jump to when you were 19 years old. Uh, I believe you were 19 going into the 2012 Olympics. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So so you're coming back from a knee injury. So the 2012 London Olympics, you had a knee injury in 2010. Sounds like 2011 was was a, a challenging year coming back from that from that injury and it was a struggle just to get to the start line, let alone get there to win the Olympic trials to get you that number one seed in London. Tell us a little bit about that. That time as such a young person dealing with those challenges where you've put so much of yourself into this. And now here you're on the precipice of this dream. You didn't even know when you were younger because this wasn't an Olympic sport. And now here it is London Olympics. You're two years out and you're dealing with recovering from this injury and how you bounced forward in a way that allowed you to go win at Olympic trials and get yourself to the start line as a favorite at Lon in London. Yeah, I'll even go one step further back. So 2008 was the first time that BMX was in the Olympics and I was 15 years old at this time. And I remember staying up all night to watch the very first BMX race at the Olympics in China, it's like three in the morning. Like I vividly remember in my room, I was like, this is, is I know what what year it was I had the big box TV, you know, and I was, uh, you know, hit, hitting the, the channel button to get to the right channel to watch the NBC. But, um, so I watched the Olympics. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, I've seen plenty of pro BMX races before, but like not to that level where you've got all these really cool uniforms, these special bikes, you're at the Olympics. The, it, it was just such a cool thing to see. And so the next day, I, uh, I had a little bit of a, a gym set up in my garage at the time. I had some weights and some stuff like that. And, and the next day, I, I grabbed a Sharpie and I wrote on my garage in front of the squat rack that one day I will win world champion and one day be an Olympic gold medalist. And uh, I got grounded because I wrote on my parents' wall with a Sharpie, as I should have been. <laughs> But they, they let it so they kind of left, left it there and they let me let me keep it. Um, I guess from their point of view, they're like, well, at least he's focused on something positive and healthy and he's not getting into trouble, you know. And uh, so the next my goal at that point was I'm gonna try to make the 2016 Olympics. I'll be 23, kind of physical prime. Um, Team USA got silver and bronze in 2008. So like we had an amazing team. And so I'm like, oh, there's no way I'm gonna be able to push those guys out. By the time I'm 19, I'll, I'll aim for 20, 2016. But then I started dedicating myself. And um, I guess the best way to describe it is like, if I do something, I do it all the way. Like, I don't really have like a halfway button. Like, I'm either, it's either like I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. Um, so I dedicated everything for the next four years to that goal. And um, things started happening really quickly. Uh, I guess a combination of, talent, good people around me and work ethic, you put it all together and, and things started happening pretty quickly, quicker than 
I think anybody anticipated. Um, 2010, I tore my meniscus in a crash and I tried to treat it. I tried to heal it non-surgically. So I did like three, four months of physical therapy to try to heal it non-surgically, but then it didn't work. So then I had to get surgery and start back at zero. So that it ended up being like six, seven months total um, in time to, to get it fixed. You know, in hindsight, I should have just gotten the surgery right away because then it would have been quicker, but you know, things worked out. Um, so in 2011, I didn't start competing until June. So I had about 12 months before the Olympics um, and slowly started getting better, getting better, getting better, started winning events. I won my first World Cup, made the team or won the trials, made the team. And like life came at me fast. Like before I knew it, I was racing in the trials against the guys that I stayed up all night to watch four years before. Um, the guys who were like my heroes, I had their autograph four years before. And now I was trying to take their job quite literally. And um, so that was, you know, came pretty quick. Uh, and it all happened. I don't want to say easily because I had to work extremely hard and there was a lot went into it. But it almost happened like so quickly that I wasn't ready for it. And so then I get to the Olympics. I went on my heats. I win my semi. And then I'm sitting in the starting line for the finals as the number one seed pole position. I'm the youngest rider competing in the event. And I've never been in a situation even remotely like this before. And I'm sitting here. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to win. I'm already planning the after party. Like, where am I? I'm, like, I'm wondering in my mind, like, I live in Vegas. So, like, yeah, <laughs> we can get into it in 2016, but if you're going to win a gold medal, there's not really a better place to go home to. Um, <laughs> so I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to get into the after party. I, I'm just skipping steps. I'm getting ahead of myself, right? Classic yeah. young athlete thinking. When in, in reality, looking back, I should have been focused on executing my start, getting, locked getting in. my marks, yeah. doing the right, you know, doing the right process to get to it. Um, then I just got to that moment and it all just hit me. I was like, oh, no, I am in this position. Holy crap. And so I ended up kind of having a poor race, and I got seventh. And then I, I'll never forget, like, getting back to the, the pit three, four minutes after crossing the finish line. And then you just sit there, and you start getting undressed, and you're like, well, now what? Because there's not another race tomorrow. There's not another race next week, next month, next year. That's four years that you got to sit around and wait. And what an opportunity squandered. Number one seed Olympic final, nothing. And you got to sit on that and chew on that. And so, yeah, that was hard. And I went through a period of depression and I went through a period like wondering, like, because the, the whole thought process to me was what happens if I get back into this position? Can I do it? Or am I going to make the same mistake? And you can't really practice that position. You can do it. You can go to the world or you can go to the Canon games or whatever. And those are big races and that's a big deal, but you can only get one Olympics every four years. Most athletes get one shot at it. If you're lucky, you get two. Very select few get three and four. And so it's like, am, am I going to be able to do this if I get back into that same position? And so that was a very, very hard process to kind of go through for four years um, in between. So, uh, man, I, I, I want to jump to 2016 here, but tell me how you navigated that as far as those dark times, the depression, the psychology, the mindset that allowed you to get 
into the form you were in 2016 to where you could lock in, trust your process onto the next, take it each step of the, the race. Tell me a little bit about that process, how you navigated that depression, that struggle, that, that loss, you know, that's, there's some mourning. You put in what you've put in, you go in that one seed, you feel like you have something and it doesn't happen for whatever reason, that's loss. And that's real heavy loss based off of one the perspective of where you are in your life and how important that moment was to you. And also just the time you've put into it. So tell me a little more about how at a young age you navigated that. And did you, did you get the support? Did you have a counselor or a sports psychologist? Was it just your folks and coach? Like how did, how did you bounce forward from that? Yeah. I think looking back at it, and I think back and there was some other stuff going on in my personal life at that point in time too. My parents had just separated. Like there was, I mean, there was a lot going on for a 19 year old to handle. That's a lot of um, <laughs> And I might, I, I guess I, I don't want to sit here and say that I was perfect and I handled it, you know, everything perfect, but I had good days and bad days. I had ups and downs for the next four years. There was times when I was, you know, dealing with it well. And there was other times where it would creep up and, and where it would creep up was if I got back into a major event final, national championship, something like that. And then I would have the same problem. I would choke because I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, can I do it? Can I execute? I know I'm fast. I know I'm strong. But what happens if I get back into that position? Am I good enough to handle that moment? Right? And in society, everybody loves the Kobe's, the Michael Jordan's, the Tom Brady's, the, the athletes who seemingly just have ice in their veins and give them the ball with a couple seconds left and you know what's going to happen. And so I started studying that, reading books, watching documentaries, trying to figure out what it was and like if it's if you can bottle it and figure out a way to do it. Um, I worked with a sports psychologist and I probably complained way too much to my coach and friends over those couple of years, but just continued to learn and develop. And then as it got towards Rio, um, and there's a side story that also helped this thought process come out. But when I got to Rio, like as cheesy as this sounds, like truthfully, my only goal was to leave with my head held high that I did my best. And if that is fifth place, yeah. I might not be happy, but I won't have any regrets. Like I just wanted to look. You going in there? To, you were going in there to control what you could control. I wanted, yeah. At the end of that that event, I wanted to look in the mirror and say I did my best from everything from prep to how I competed on the day. Um, but with that said, I always believed that if I did that, my best was good enough to contend for a podium on any day, anywhere, against anyone. Um, and so. Going into Rio, like, of course I wanted to win. Everybody wants to win. But I just wanted to, I just wanted to not have what happened in London, which is regret. So it sounds like you had a real confidence going into to Rio, but not a, self, a, a false confidence. I think you see a lot of athletes projecting. And, and to me, having a true confidence is a willingness to be vulnerable with the fact that, you know, okay, I've got the confidence that if I pop one off here, I can compete with anyone. And I know by putting myself out here, this is a real vulnerable thing because I still might not have the success yeah. that I want well, or people want for me. I, it sounds like that, but I did leave out one important detail yeah. of Rio. I barely okay. made it to Rio. So yeah. 
I was everything was going well. I was the number one ranked American. I was on track to get an automatic qualification. And then April first, um, which I'll never forget the day because I called my family, told them they thought I was playing a joke on them. Um, April Fool's Day, but I shattered my wrist in uh, Manchester, England, at the home of British Cycling, and I had to fly back to the U.S. Um, have surgery at the Stedman Clinic in Vale. And the wrist was destroyed. I had a bone graft, five screws. It was a six-hour surgery. It was just not good at all. Um, and basically, Doc explained that, like, you're going to miss every remaining event. You're going to miss the Olympic trials. Maybe you'll be okay to actually race at the games, but nothing beforehand. And so then um, it came down to I needed a specific rider to win the trials for me to get the spot. Because if he didn't win, they would have picked him because he was healthy and he was like the number, I guess, number two guy before he got hurt. He ended up winning. They called me. They said, hey, we need proof that you could ride before we name you to the team. Called the doctor, explained it. He said, let's get some x-rays and see what we look like. Uh, he said, the x-rays, they show improvement, but your bone's still broken. I can't legally clear you. This is up to you. Yeah, it's, nothing, it's up to you, your call. If you hold on to the handlebars, you're fine. It might hurt, but it'll be okay. But if you fall on that wrist again, like you're in big, big trouble. And so for me, like if it was any other event, wouldn't have done it. But I almost had to because like from a psychology standpoint, like my whole life for four years had been leading up to just another shot, right? And, and I, even if I didn't win, I needed just to execute to show that I could execute, right? And kind of crush that demon. And so I ended up making the Olympics. And then when I was there, I was just happy to be there. It was like a whole new- Yeah, I, I've heard you say you were just happy to be there. I was just happy to be there. I was like, sweet, I made it. Like Just showing up under six hour surgery, wrist surgery, hearing this whole scenario, the, the x-rays every two weeks and not getting officially cleared and you have, having to make that decision. It sounds like just showing up to Rio was audacious and bold in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and for me again, like I didn't think of it as audacious or bold for me. It was just like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. But uh, I, I had a different perspective there because I was just happy to be there. And so mm -hmm. going into London, my thought process was like, I'm going to win this race going into Rio. It was like, I'm just going to do my best, you know, play the cards that I was dealt. And, and honestly, like, I was like, maybe if I do everything right, maybe I could get second or third or something. Like, I'll get lucky and maybe there'll be some um, chaos in the race and I'll be in the right place, right time. And I'll squeeze in for a bronze medal, which I would have been stoked with based on the circumstances of having a broken wrist, barely making it, the whole thing. Um, so then get into the final again. And as we're getting into the final, it was not the number one seed. I was the number six seed. So, you know, again, I was like, Maybe I can squeeze out a bronze. I was <laughs> just hoping for that. Um, and my coach comes up to me, and he was the same coach as in London, and he said to me, he said, uh, do you remember London? I was like, yeah. And he goes, this is 10 minutes before the Olympic final. He goes, do you remember London? I said, yeah. Goes, do you remember how it felt? And in my mind, I'm like, why the heck are you asking me this? Like, this is like, <laughs> sports like 101 is like, don't remind somebody of the time you messed it up. Um, and he's like, do you remember how that felt? every day for the last four years, this is your chance to fix it and feel better for the rest of your life. Go get it. 
And like, as much as that's the opposite of what someone should say to somebody, it was the perfect thing to be said to because in my mind, it like crushed all the doubt and it just made me want to put that to bed. And whatever that meant, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, just do my best. And um, I'm very thankful that he he said that. And who knows if he had not, if he had just said like, you know, good luck, cover your lines, you know, or what, like a standard kind of free thing. Or like, you got this, I believe in you. Like, who knows what would have happened, but he said the perfect thing. Um, and it, it all lined up and then the race was chaos. I ended up, yeah. ended up winning. Um, and it, it was like the, it was a bunch of shock, but then at the same time in a weird way, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant. I kind of always knew I was going to win from the time I was 15 years old. And I wrote that on the wall. Like it was almost like mm-hmm. that was just part of my life path. Um, and I don't know if that's a, a self-belief thing, a, a manifestation, a confidence. I don't know exactly what it is, mm-hmm. but it was like I made the decision in my mind that I was going to win the Olympics. And so then I, when I won, like, of course, I was surprised, shocked, elated. But it was also like, yeah, I was always going to. Like, as weird as that sounds. Well, I, I'm a big believer in visualization. I'm a big believer in positive visualization, whether it's for an event, that's next weekend or years down the road in, in working with a lot of athletes, it seems to me in my experience that the more pressure somebody puts on a result, like the the more you need that result, especially if it's something you need for a sense of identity, more often than not, my observation has been that that, that desired result, doesn't come to fruition. Today, I talked to my daughter because we're about to go into the state swim meet. And I just talked to her about just doing her best, showing up. Don't worry about getting sick. They've got a sleepover tomorrow. I don't like that they got a sleepover tomorrow with state next next week. Uh, Too many kids in one room to get sick. And and she brought that up. And I said, you know, okay, you're going to show up. You're going to do your best. So remember, only mediocre people can be their best every day but you can do your best. You can sure do your best every day. And we're a week out from state. And and all I said to her was, you know, okay, Bear, focus on that effort, control those actions, go in there with that attitude, do that positive visualization and go in with a sense of lightness and curiosity. And to me, what you just described, it sounds like you had a real sense of, sounds like there was a shift there in those last 10 minutes, but going into those games, it sounds like there was a lightness about you that you didn't have in London. You didn't seem to feel as much pressure and and the curiosity of, okay, can I go get this third? Can I go get a podium? I think when you're an athlete, there's very few people in this world who can relate to a Connor Fields. There's just very few people who've ever been at the top of a sport like you have, that have been on stages like you have in, in the Olympics. On a smaller scale, though, you can break it down to Montana high school swimming. There's going to be the three, four, five kids who have that chance to podium. And just hearing your approach going into it and then how you were able to put it all together. And then in that moment of what sounded like a little bit of a mamba mentality in those last 10 minutes, which your coach was preaching to you and your ability to soak that in and, and carry that and then to go in there and race, it's, it's just an inspiring it's an inspiring story. And to hear 
about the wrist and to know, let me ask you, what, what was the status of the wrist at that point? Like how healed up you, you, you were able to come back and make, make the team, but how healed up were you at that point? Um, I'm going to bounce around real quick. So kind of like what you were saying there, I was, there's so much going on when I boarded that flight to Rio. I wanted to prove to the coaches that they made the right decision to pick me because they turned other people who were healthy down to give me this shot. And so that there's that part of it. There was the fact that I really hope I don't go down because my wrist can't handle it. My wrist hurts. I'm going to need some Advil and to wrap this thing up real tight to even get through the day. Uh, I just, I, I'm just happy to be here because there was nights where I couldn't sleep thinking that I wasn't going to be here. So there's all that going on. And then on top of that, it was like, all right, I'm in decent shape. Like I, my prep actually went better than I expected maybe I could scrape out a third. Like, so the, the, it was just a lot going on that I was just happy to be there. Um, and then as far as the risk status of the risk, the doc um, who did it, Dr. Viola, he is an absolute legend. He's like the man. He, he's, if, if you're a big name athlete and you hurt your hand or wrist, like that's the guy to go see. His office walls, it's just a who's who of NFL, NBA, Olympic athletes. Like, it's crazy. Um, he knew the situation and he knew he was trying to get me to the Olympics. He knew the wrist wasn't going to be better. So he anchored it down with extra screws to allow me some stability at the Olympics. So the status was the bone graft had like semi caught. It was kind of alive, but not like fully totally there. Uh, my movement was like very minimal. Like I could barely move it. Um, and then after surgery or after the Olympics were done, two months later, I went back, had another surgery. He removed the extra metal that he put in to get me through the games. And then I was finally cleared in like November of that year. Watch, watching you pop off that bike. That's one of my favorite scenes is right after you cross that finish line. Again, you look like you could be playing linebacker somewhere, you know, be uh, small forward. Your athleticism was on full display, but the way you popped off that bike and, and ran to your people and that overflowing sense of gratitude, it seemed like you were putting out in that moment. And I've heard you talk about how much you wanted to give to those people who helped you get there. I got weepy with my daughter watching that this morning, watching your dad talk about how proud he was of you in that moment. And it wasn't, you could sense it as a dad, it wasn't about winning that gold. It was about all you overcame to get there, to put yourself in a position to have a shot to compete for that. And then to achieve the dream that got you grounded for what you wrote on the uh, on the on the wall of the garage is just it's just a beautiful thing to to, to watch. It's, well, it's, I it's, encourage it's, everybody to. Part of being an individual sport, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. If I win, it's on me. If I lose, it's on me. I never have to worry about a, a situation where, like, let's say, I play basketball. I scored thirty, had an amazing game, got a bunch of rebounds and steals, but the rest of the team let me down, and I should feel good, but I don't. Right? I never have that. I'll also never have. You know, I pass the ball to my teammate and he makes a winning shot and we all get to go over there and celebrate together. So it's pros and cons of that, right? So for me, when I crossed finish line, my initial reaction, like this wasn't planned, obviously, 
I saw my people, my training partner, my coach, my program director, my uh, swan yay, massage therapist. Like I saw all of them and my initial reaction was like, let's party. <laughs> you know, <'Cause laughs> it, that was my celebrating with my teammates. And, you know, for my dad, um, you know, the amount of work that he put in, which I understand now as I got older, uh, I'm not a father, but as a father, I'm sure you'll understand this. There's probably plenty of, of, of Saturdays where he didn't want to go out to the BMX track for 12 hours. He probably didn't want to spend his paycheck on bike parts, you know, and there's probably plenty of times where he didn't want to watch that BMX DVD that I was dying to watch, but he did. And so for it to all work out and ultimately like achieve the, the, the pinnacle, the goal, it almost had a sense, not that it wasn't worth it if I didn't get it, but it like validated that like the path that we were on led to this and it was all worth it. Um, which is, which was a, a cool experience. Yeah. Well, let's, let's fast forward to 2021. I mean, I know we call it the 2020 Tokyo games, but to 2021, what was your mindset going into 2021? So I guess after 2016, I had a complete mindset shift and now I trusted myself abundantly in high pressure situations. And between 2016 and 2021, I'd have to rack my brain for a time that I didn't execute to the absolute best of my abilities under pressure. Like I, I began to not only perform well in those situations, but love and embrace and enjoy those situations. Like the more pressure, the bigger the deal, give me the number one seat, put all the, put all the spotlight on me. Like I love it. Let's go. Um, so it was like a complete mindset shift. And what I, what I would tell people who ask how that happened is, well, I kept putting myself between 12 and 16 I kept putting myself back into that position, the, the pressure spot, the one seed, the big moment, you know, the being the favorite. I kept putting myself back into that position, and sometimes I would execute, and sometimes I wouldn't. But through, just like anything, through practice and repetition, I figured it out to where I felt very safe, comfortable, and, and like I knew what I was doing. So at that point, like, you win a gold medal. There's really only one – there's two options. One, retire, go out on top. I was 23. Nah, can't really do that. Two, try to back it up. Like, the, what else are you going to do? Um, once you've won the gold, not to say that getting a silver or bronze would still be awesome, but it would always feel like a bit of a letdown, right? So the, the plan was always like, all right, cool. Like, I'm going to just try to re try to repeat it and do every take what I learned, take everything that I experienced. I'm older now. I'm physically in my prime. Everything's um, lined up for me to have a really good chance. And then, um, you know, getting to, to Tokyo, I don't want to say it was easy, but like much easier process than the last two times. I was by far and away the number one American. It was not even a real question. I get to Tokyo. I'm in the best shape of my life. I win the quarterfinals pretty much with ease. Get to the semis, number one seed. Now, there are some amazing racers, and it's BMX racing, and anything can happen. But I felt as if if I if I did my best and I executed the best of my abilities, there's a good chance that I will end up on the podium, and a chance is that there's another chance that it will be a goal again. Um, and I didn't get to to finish the day. Obviously, we'll get into that. But I still feel like that. Like had I finished the day, yeah, I'm not saying I would have won because you never know. But I'd have had a chance. I don't think anybody would argue that I would have had a chance. No. And, um, you know, put myself back in that situation where I'm in the Olympic final again. I'm, I'm the only person in the hit 
in the history of the Olympics in BMX who's been in three Olympic finals. One of them I was in the ambulance for, so I didn't really get to compete in it. But from an experience thing, and as an athlete, experience is your best friend. The vast majority of people in that final were in their first final. The guy who won in Tokyo was in his second. He was in the final in Rio. And so I don't think anybody had one other rider who had been in two. But, like, the experience is so big in that moment because you just can't practice that moment. So then get in through quarters. We're in semis. Uh, it's run over best of three series. The first one I got third, the second one I got first. I had like almost mathematically clinched it. Like I, I think I needed like this very super specific scenario to happen where I got last and then this guy won and this guy got second or something to knock me out. But then your, your gate selection on the starting grid is determined by the third semifinal. So you have to do your best in that to give yourself your best gate selection. Uh, and you like that inside. You like that inside gate. Everybody right? will not drive. The majority yeah. do because if you're on the inside, yeah. all you have to do is be even and you're in position. If you're on the outside, you have to be a complete length faster to get over and in front. So I prefer inside because then you don't have to – you can just be the same speed and you've got the position. Um, so in that third semifinal, like this total freak accident happened. Another rider's hip clipped my handlebar causing my, my handlebars to move, uh, going 35 miles an hour, all of a sudden just going with your handlebars, led to me going over the front. I didn't have time to brace, straight into asphalt, hit my forehead, um, unconscious, not breathing, you know, whole thing. Um, so there they loaded me up on, on once stabilized and I was breathing again and all that. They put me on a bodyboard, took me to an ambulance and then took me off in the ambulance to the Tokyo hospital while the finals raced with seven riders, which has never happened before because I still mathematically earned a spot in the final. Um, so I think that's a record that, that will probably never be beat. I'll probably be the only person in the history of BMX to qualify for a final from the ambulance. Um, so that's you know, not one I'm not one I'm necessarily proud of, but uh, and so I get to the hospital and then for about 24 hours, my brain was swollen and, they were on standby to potentially have to remove a piece of my skull uh, to re reduce the, the swelling and the pressure. Luckily, it subsided. No surgery was needed. And then it was basically, we'll see what condition he is in when he wakes up. And then um, my family was here at home. They could not come to Tokyo. There was no friends or family allowed in the country due to COVID. The only updates they would get was during the visiting hours when uh, people were allowed to come and see me and I was still sleeping. So they were basically just sitting around wondering if I was going to wake up and be me, if I was going to wake up and be uh, you know, a vegetable, like what was I going to be? Mm -hmm. And then uh, I first remember waking up, my phone was on my bedside table. I was by myself covered in bandages, like what the heck is going on? I opened my phone. 600 text messages, you know, I open up social media and I'm piecing it together and I open up social media and it's like BBC, CNN, Fox News, NBC, you know, like, like the biggest media outlets available, Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated. And I'm like, Jesus, what is going on? <laughs> so I don't remember anything. So I'm like, and then I see the video and then I'm like piecing it all together. Um, and then I, 
call my dad and then he calls the doctor, the American doctor, because the Japanese doctor comes in, but I can't communicate with him because he speaks Japanese. He calls the American doctor, the American doctor comes and sees me, explains what's going on in Tokyo for seven, eight days before I get released to fly back home, fly back home, started what ended up being about a year of rehabilitation for both my head and my shoulder, which I needed shoulder reconstruction surgery. Um, At that point in 2022, I committed to doing about a month of training and I said, I'm going to see if I want to go out this way or if I want to try to come back. It's only two more years to the next Olympics. You know, do I want to maybe try to end on a high note? Did a bit of training. I still was kind of fast. I was surprisingly not as bad as I thought I would be. I bet you were. Um, but it was just like, you know what? Like, I feel content. And of course, I didn't want to end that way. But everything else I'm content with. And I'm not willing to take the risk to do that again. And going through a, a near-death experience changes you. And I've talked to other people who have been That's in a near-death right. experience. And... It's impossible for it not to. And, and, and I'm sure in some cases it makes people really reserved and fearful and not want to do anything. But for me, it just made me want to truly live every day like it's my last and just enjoy everything. Um, and as easy as it would be for me to be like sad or bitter about how my I raced, I raced BMX for 23 years and I have no memory of my final event. The last time I ever took my Team USA jersey off, it was cut off of me. Right. Like it'd be really easy for me to be bitter about about that. But then I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I'm alive. I'm healthy. I'm having this conversation with you. I remember my third grade teacher. I can go ride my mountain bike later if I want to. Like, you know, things aren't that bad. Um, And so I made the decision and. I uh, I don't say I'm I'm like happy, but I didn't realize I didn't realize how stressful it was dealing with that pressure for 15 years. I've been dealing with this pressure of being the top American since I was 16 years old and having people's jobs on the line based on my performance and sponsors wanting me to hit certain things and and my own personal pressure that I put on myself to perform. And now when I can just wake up in the morning and the only pressure is, you know, what am I making for breakfast today? You know, it's, it's kind of nice. It sounds like you really were able to surrender and let go and accept and embrace this storied career that you've had, this remarkable career. And I'll tell you this right now, as a speaker, as an author, as a motivator, I like to, my, my, my counselor, when I ask my counselor, when I'm getting down on myself, and what am I doing? He always tells me, Michael, you're an inspirer of people. And I can tell you, Connor Fields, you're an inspirer of people. And I'm such a big believer that there's unmatched power in sport. Nelson Mandela said that. Nelson Mandela said there's unmatched power in sport because it speaks to people in a universal language that we can all understand. And I was the closing keynote speaker at the Montana Superintendents Conference years ago. So it was all the superintendents of Montana. In there, I spoke about why I believe when we use the platform as coaches and athletes, why I believe it's a more profound platform than anything that can ever be taught in a classroom. And if I right now am hiring a keynote speaker, and I have the opportunity to hire somebody with a PhD or a master's in the topic or Connor Fields. I just think the experience you've had at this level, it's so unique. And we put such an emphasis on 
education. I think your education and life experiences are are untapped. They're unmatched. It's just a it's a it's a beautiful ride. And I, and the fact that you've been able to surrender and and you're locked in for a long time and now lock out and start turning your focus to some other things in life. I think is something really worth celebrating. And then also having the wisdom. I, I got diagnosed with, uh, they call me here at our hospital, the Christmas miracle in Bozeman, because after a hip surgery at the University of Utah, at a labrum tear, uh, and I looked up your wrist surgeon because I had a TFCC tear from a bike injury back in 2012 and ended up having it done locally here, went, went well. But uh, I had a hip surgery down at University of Utah and about six weeks later, I, I tell this story in my TED talk, I ended up having a blood clot. We didn't know I had this really rare clotting disorder. You don't put a 32 year old on, on blood thinners after a surgery. And I ended up throwing a clot and I had bilateral pulmonary embolisms and uh, an infarct in my lung. And I was, I was in the hospital for a, a week and it was touch and go. And I was told I was going to have to be on blood thinners the rest of my life. And they told me I had to stop climbing and skiing and biking and all these things. Yeah. And the one thing I told them I can't give up because I've got bad hips. I've got poorly shaped hips is riding a bike, but I ride a bike very differently now. And now everything I do, I do the endurance stuff. I do these long endurance rides that, that, that aren't as technical and I'm not in it for the results, but just more the fitness and the experience. I think there's a lot of wisdom and it says a lot about your character and integrity and sense of self to be able to make that decision. That was what impressed me when you shared that, just seeing how young and strong and, and fit you are. So um, I, I really admire it. I don't know what I, that I'd be asking you on this show as far as the, the bounce forward without you having that kind of, uh, that sense of self that I saw on that stage. I think that's what's gonna really allow you to inspire uh, a lot of people. You've, you've done it on the bike, Connor Fields. Like, I mean, anything else you would do on the bike is just, you know, I don't no, no. sprinkles on the cake. It's not even the icing. You already got the yeah. icing on it. You know, um, so I do want to actually touch on what you were just saying a second yes, ago. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I realize it now, right? So I think when you're an athlete, especially when you're you know competing for Olympics or if you're in the NFL or something like that, you almost to an extent have to have blinders on. And you have to be so singularly focused that you don't allow yourself to look around and like stop and smell the roses, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Now that I can look back, I kind of realized like I've lived multiple lives in the last 15 years, right. From the failures uh, on the biggest stages to the successes on the biggest stages, to the injuries, to learning how to work with coaches, different coaches, teammates, different personalities, sharing rooms with somebody who you're literally competing for one spot with and learning how to navigate that situation. Um, traveling around the world and what you learn from different cultures, meeting different people, um, understanding what is important to you, what's not important to you, and understanding how far the human body can go if the mind is there. Right. And then understand how to control your own thoughts better. No one's perfect at it, but be better at it. So like, I'm very thankful. You talked about the unmatched um, power of sport. I don't know what my life would look like without sport. You know, maybe I'd have a few less scars, but ultimately like I'm so thankful for what I've learned from sport and how it's applicable to life. And like whenever I have children, like 
build a sport. I don't care what sport, do whatever you want, but you're going to do a sport because you can learn about life through sport. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let, let, let's, let's dive a little deeper into that with, with the, you've referenced failures multiple times. Um, I don't know that other people would necessarily uh, perceive what you consider a failure, a failure, but I think that is all success. Failure is a matter of perspective, but how have the quote failures and the setbacks, all that you've been through, how has that impacted your perspective and just what a resilience human it's clear that you are i mean your fortitude and the connor fields you are today would you touch a little more on that yeah i mean i guess uh there's two two ways i look at this one is there's the small failures and then the big failures right so part of training and as an athlete um you have small individual daily or weekly goals things you're trying to hit targets you're trying to hit weights you're trying to lift in the gym times you're trying to hit but then you have your bigger goals, you know, certain events that you've got circled on the calendar, or you want to finish the season ranked a certain thing. Um, so you can you can have failures on a daily basis. I didn't lift the weight I wanted to lift. And, and is that failure in the end of the world? No. But you need to sit down, identify where you went wrong, how can you fix it? How can I avoid doing this again? And then um, on the larger scale, if you fail. You know, say you want to finish the series in the top three and you get fifth. You have to go back and look and figure it out. Uh, figure out where you went wrong. How can you improve two spots the following season? Um, failure is like the best teacher, but only if you let it. A lot of people won't let it. They don't want to think about it. They just want to move forward. But you can't move forward until you look back and identify what you did there. And the next thing I'll say is like, I'm from Vegas, and maybe this is just innate with me because I'm from here, but – I believe that if you want to win big, you got to bet big, right? But the flip side of that is that you might lose. Mm -hmm. So if you go all in, if you're playing poker and you go all in, there's a chance you get a huge pot, but there's also a chance somebody's going to have a better hand than you, and you might have a great hand, and you might statistically be making all the right decisions. The percentages and, and, and odds are in your favor, but somebody else just has a better hand. And then you you bust, you're broke, right? So you got to bet big to win big. So anybody who sets out with the goal, like truly of I want to win the Olympics, not everybody who says that's going to do it. No. And you win yeah. losing big on that scale is like getting fourth at the Olympics, or uh, Lolo Jones who's leading the Olympic event clips a hurdle and gets nothing, right? But if that had worked out, you're an Olympic champion. So, you know, you got to bet big to win big. And I view that on life. Like if, if you want to win big in life, whatever your definition of winning is, you've got to be willing to bet big because there's a chance that it might go the other way. So along those lines, I have little doubt that Connor Fields is going to continue to bet big on himself and go all in on things and have tremendous success, whatever it is that you choose to do. So let's talk a little bit about the remake. Uh, in my second book, I write a lot about the remake, something that we're all going to have to go through at some point in our life. And we're typically going to go through multiple times like to say that for everything, there's a season. Uh, another one of my favorite Nelson Mandela quotes, he, Nelson Mandela said, I never lost at anything. I either won or I learned. Uh, 
And as a coach yeah. and in my house with my daughter, we always say we win or we grow, we win or we learn. And I love how you touched upon just that as far as the, the failures. There's little failures every day and then there's there's some bigger failures we have to contend with. And I'd also say that there's little victories every day and there's the big victories. And I think it's important not to just celebrate the big victories, the gold medals that, that you know, most folks are never going to experience, but our version of it, whether it's the publication of a book or a new job or the birth of a child, but then there's the little victories, man, that cold brew was awfully tasty this morning, you know, and I think it's important to, to be. Or even, or even something as simple as if you set a goal to work out five days a week yeah. and you work your fifth yeah. day that week. Yeah, you, whatever it may. I drew up. I drew up a plan today for somebody. It was some over unders, and they got through the over unders. as a sweet spot tempo over over unders, and yeah. they pushed the end of it into some threshold work, and that was that was a victory worth celebrating. So let let's talk a little bit about what's what's next. Uh, let's talk coaching for a moment. I know you. I know you coach as well, and I love learning about how you go to the local tracks and like to help the young kids out. I can't even imagine a, a young BMXer at Cotter Fields comes in and it seems like you well, really... have no idea who I am. That's part, okay. you know, one seven year old kid who's on his third day at the track. Okay. He has no clue who I am. Well, well tell this me about, I've heard you reference the responsibility you feel that you have to be a, a role model for the sport. Tell me a little bit about that and, and your coaching. Yeah. So I, uh, I enjoy helping others. Like I think that's that's very uh, a very fulfilling thing. In an individual sport, you have no choice but to be inherently selfish at times. You're trying to perform for yourself. Um, doesn't mean you don't care about others, but you know it's not like a team sport when you're out there fighting and clawing with your with your brothers out there. So there's something always been rewarding and fulfilling about helping other people reach their goals. Um, but with that being said, like I've got. I mean, I would venture to say one of the most in-depth knowledges of the sport ever. And so for me to just disappear and exit stage left, mm -hmm. to me, that seems almost like a waste. Um, and I don't want to say that it's easy because coaching is not easy, but I've been in that athlete's shoes. I've been exactly where they are. I understand it. And I also understand what you need to do to get out of that position. I'm talking more on the high level here. Yeah. Um, so I find it enjoyable and helpful, but almost easy to an extent to help these athletes get to where they're trying to go. Cause I've made all the mistakes for them. I can save them. The, I can save them the mistakes. Um, it's like a parent. They're like, they're like, Oh, don't make the same mistakes I did. You know, it's yeah. the same sort of thing. Um, I also enjoy doing like all the way down to the beginners who are learning the basics of how to ride. Maybe their family just discovered the BMX track. And these, these are the kids who have no clue who I am. And, you know, but it's, it's something kind of fresh about uh, helping out the kid who's just learning how to pedal properly or where to put his feet on the pedal or something like that versus somebody who's trying to contend for an Olympic spot. Um, so coaching has been enjoyable. I've got, Three athletes right now who are, would be, I guess, considered Olympic hopefuls that I'm helping out. Oh, wow. um, and then I do different like camps and riding schools and things like that occasionally as well, which is fun. And then um, I'm doing a lot, man. I, uh, I have a degree in business management. I went to school uh, part-time for nine years when I was competing. Um, 
And so I, I use some of that stuff as well. I've got a signature grip that I, uh, oh, nice. I run all the marketing for and I design and, and do everything there. I sponsor a couple athletes with that. Um, doing some speaking stuff, tremendous which has speaker. been fun. Yeah, tremendous speaker. You got you got a bright future of that. Any 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 corporation, I'm telling you right now, any U Corps. I got to do a keynote a couple of years ago down at the Win. That was a nice place to come down to the Win for a keynote. Mm-hmm. Hire this man. This man can speak. He's got a story to tell. Well, thank you. Um, but yeah, stay busy. Doing a lot of different things. Um, Want to get maybe into doing some broadcasting for some of the BMX events, maybe broadcast the next Olympics and kind of see where that takes me. I, it's really easy for me to talk about the sport, what I see, yeah. what's going on. And then I can also go and interview the athletes and I can, I'm friends with the guys that we all have mutual respect. So it's easy for me to do that. Um, so yeah, we'll see where it goes. And then um, down the road, you know, who knows? I have some interest in maybe getting involved in the Olympic movement. Um, and then sometimes I think about maybe getting involved with like a brand or something like that and do, doing some more on the marketing business side because I do enjoy that with my product. But the way that I view it, is, the way I'm approaching it is I dedicated 15 years of my life to one specific goal. Blinders on, beeline, just going. I'm going to allow myself a year or two to take a deep breath, relax. I mean, I just finished physical therapy seven months ago. Yeah. So I'm only going to help the normal for seven months. Um So I'm going to allow myself a year or two just to relax, chill, do a little bit of a lot of things and figure out which one brings me the most fulfillment and most joy and then really lock in on that one thing um, and and go down that pathway. Nice. That seems like a a good fit for somebody who's been as focused and regimented as you've been to be able to find that next thing to lock in on. Let me ask you, what's your movement? What's your fitness routine look like these days? How, how you stay. I didn't, I, I'm enjoying using my body in every way that I can. Um, I was so focused for so long on doing a very specific type of training and a very specific type of thing with my body that I'm loving doing everything now. I ride my road bike, my mountain bike, snowboard, lift weights. I'll go play tennis. Like I'll do anything. Like it's so many, I, I joined a rec league softball. I did eight weeks of softball with a buddy of mine. Um, a couple months ago. I mean, I'll do anything. I, I, I love to work out, stay fit, but I'm just having a good time trying new things. Nice. Let me ask you this. As you were bouncing forward from this traumatic brain injury, were there any rituals or routines, uh, like daily routines, habits that served as an anchor for you that really helped? I think being injured as an athlete and unable to train is so challenging just because of that structure that is such a part of the daily life. I'm a big believer in the healing power of rituals and routines. Did you have any routines here through this process and your work with University of Utah this last year that you feel like well, helped speed the healing? I mean, when I started out, my brain was not functioning at 100%. So it was trying to, and I was sleeping 16, 17 hours a day. So yeah. it was like just trying to become normal. Yeah. So initially, the, the prognosis was, we have no idea if you're going to make a full recovery. We have no idea to what extent your recovery will be. Do your best, follow, follow the, the protocols and the program, and we'll see where it goes. Um, I learned through my experience that for everything that they know about the brain, they really don't know much. <laughs> and with something like tearing an ACL, they can basically say, here's your six-month program. You're going to follow these processes, and if you follow these processes, 99% chance 
you'll be good to go at the six month mark, right? That's physical therapy. When it's cognitive and your brain's not working properly to process things, that's a different ballgame. But what ended up happening there was as I improved, got to like month two, month three, and my personality started to kind of come back and I was able to kind of more of me came through. The same way that I approach racing and the same way I really I approach anything, I plugged into my recovery to where I left absolutely no stone unturned in my recovery. I did everything. My day was revolved around healing. I found a local, I did research. I read papers online trying to find anything that I could find that maybe would help. Found a local hyperbaric chamber and I went every day for an hour. I found, uh, I, forget, I forget what it's called now, but uh, local, like, uh, it was like a brain stimulating thing, okay. went every day. Uh, the, the therapist would tell me to do the exercises three times. I'd do them 10. They would, uh, I did research on the foods that were best for brain health and healing. I eliminated alcohol, processed sugars, uh, a few other things, and I started adding in more walnuts, beets, oranges, things like that that had certain nutrients. And like my my entire life was became revolved around healing. And there's no way of knowing if that was the reason why I was able to make a full recovery, or if I would have made a full recovery regardless. Um, but I'm glad I don't have to wonder because I'm glad I made the full recovery and that I put in all that work and effort because if there's ever been something to put an effort for, it's for your, your life. life. Yes. Literally. Your life. Um, yeah. So yeah. that was, that was it really. And then um, at the, the, what I felt to be the accumulation of like my recovery was at the eight month mark. So before the Olympics, I had been booked to do a keynote speech at Weber state university, which is in Utah about, yeah, 45 yeah, minutes north. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, no, well. So I've been booked to do a keynote speech like a month after the Olympics. And for obvious reasons, I, I couldn't do it. So they rescheduled me to uh, February, I think it was. And um, my entire therapist team, that four or five uh, wonderful people who helped me through my initial couple months of rehabilitation, they got to come and listen to me speak which is a one hour memorized yeah. keynote. Uh, one of my initial things that I had to do was learning how to re-enunciate properly certain words. Another thing I had to do is they would give me, they would give me three words, like let's say uh, bike, lamp, flag. And then I would have to give it to them backwards and be like uh, flag, light, bike. I'd have to flip it around in my head and give it back. Okay. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So then now when I'm going up for an hour, fully memorized, enunciating, speaking, they were all there. We were all crying. It was like this really cool moment, but that was where I was like, oh, cool. I think I made a full recovery. Like I can do this. Um, but that's another like scary thing about a traumatic brain injury. Nobody takes stock of what is quote unquote normal. Yeah. There's no way of knowing if I made a full recovery. Yeah. Basically yeah. all, all they, no all they have to go on is, can you do everything that you did before yeah. to the same level? And do people around you say that you're the same and you behave the same? The answer to both of those things is yes. So I believe I've made a full recovery, but there's no, no, there's no baseline. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I'm a big believer that oftentimes we have to experience pain to have a story worth telling. Uh, my, my mom told me during a real dark time at one point, my, early 20s at the University of Montana, she said, 
Mike, you're going through a lot right now, but people who haven't struggled bore me. One thing, Connor Fields, you've got a story to tell and you're not boring. I, let, let me ask you this question. Did you have, as far as I, I love the race day routines and rituals, did you have any specific race day routines that were regimented, whether it be your breakfast? Did you like to eat the same thing? Do you have any routine that you really appreciate, you reflect on fondly, a ritual routine on race day? Yep. So... Um, at the encouragement of my coach, you're never going to be able to control all of your environment, mm -hmm. but there's certain things that you can't. So create your routine around things that you can't control, right? So it would be, I've raced in 10 different countries in Europe, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Azerbaijan, like, you know, all over. So the breakfast thing, it's like, that's never going to be the same yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what I would do is when I would get to the track, um, I had a specific playlist and when that playlist came on, it was race time. And then I would have like a mental rehearsal routine where, um, about five minutes before lining up on the start line, I would close my eyes. I would take three big, deep breaths, three big, deep breaths. And I would try to inhale. I in my mind, I would think inhale the things I want and I want to see and I want to do. Um, and then exhale the negative thoughts the thoughts of me crashing, the thoughts of me choking, the thoughts of whatever. I would then visualize my lap exactly how I wanted it to go, jump by jump. Love that. Then I would reopen my eyes and I would walk up the start ramp and then I had a routine up there, tighten both shoes, tuck my jersey in. Then I would pick a visual point where I would walk into that visual point and that would be like my way of blocking everything around me out. And then I would get into my race. I love that. Oh man, I'm looking forward to sharing this one. This one with my daughter. She's refining her pre-race routines and rituals. So but that all comes from practice. Yeah, like, it just comes from. Sure. Yeah, it's trial and error. You try yeah. stuff, and and there'd be times I would be too relaxed, and then there was plenty of times where I was too focused too, and yeah, too antsy. Yeah. That. That, through practice and, and and experience, you learn like what that window is where you need to be, and unfortunately. As your, your brain becomes so dialed in and it figures it out, it knows exactly what to do, your body's old. So it's like <laughs> the trick is how do you take that old brain and put it on a young body, yeah. but you almost can't get to the old brain without making those mistakes a few times. <laughs> For sure. Well, I know we got to get you off the line and onto your next thing here, onto the next Connor. So I'm going to just hit you up with these rapid fire questions on our way out. What does the phrase be audacious mean to Connor Fields? I guess I never thought about that, but I guess it would just mean be completely you. Like whatever you are, just be completely you. Don't hold anything back. That, that's a great response. Tell me about double sticks. I used to wear the number 11 uh, neck chain back in the day when I was hooping. Tell me how you got number 11 and, and how you stuck with number 11. Yeah, when you turn uh, professional, if you hit a certain threshold in the ranking, you're eligible to get a career number. Career numbers run between 10 and 999. Um, most people want a two digit unless they have like a connection or a reason for a three digit. Um, the only, the, my first choice would have been seven, 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 but it was taken. Hmm. And the reason I would have done seven, seven, seven is because I'm from Las Vegas and that's yeah. a jackpot. And I thought that yeah. would have been kind of a cool, kind of a cool thing. 
I'm also the only pro to really ever come out of Las Vegas for BMX racing. Um, there's a couple other guys who, who raced at the lower level of pro, but kind of the only one. So I thought that would have been like a really cool thing. But out of the numbers that were available, my favorite was 11. And uh, I always had this image in my mind. Uh, I got to do it a few times, but you'd have the number 11 on the number plate. And then when you won something, you would just peel one of the ones off and it turn into a number one. So We call it double sticks around here. That's always been my, my favorite number, number 11. So it looks good on you. I think you're definitely one of the famed number 11s of all time. What's one thing you're grateful for in your life right now, Connor? My health. Yeah. You don't appreciate that until you don't have it anymore. That's that's the truest statement. That's the truest statement we've heard on this show yet. What do you think people are genuinely surprised to learn about you or perhaps something people might get wrong about Connor Fields? We'll give you a fun one. I'll give you a deep one. Love fun it. one, I'm a dual citizen. Uh, my dad was born in England, so when I was 16, 17 years old, I had to decide what country I wanted to represent. Mm. England offered me more money, but I, I'm not British, so I couldn't do it. Okay. Um, and then on the, on the flip side, I guess, I guess this becomes natural to me because I've been around so many high-performing people, whether it's in, in business, sport, athletes, whatever it is. People like would hear hear our conversation and they might think like, wow, this guy is just like always confident. He always knows what's going on. He's just totally okay. But like that's completely wrong. Like every athlete, every high performer in any industry, no matter who they are, goes through the same thing that everybody else goes through. There are plenty of times where Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan would have self-doubt. Like that that is as much as you might not think they do, they do. You just have to figure out how to deal with that. So I guess for me, it's like people are surprised because like, oh, you seem so confident. I'm like, I lay in bed at night with anxiety, just like you. (laughs) And just figure out how to deal with it. You know, there's a cognitive behavioral therapy is a, a type of psychology I've done some work in. And then there's IFS, internal family system. It's called parts work. And Dr. Wimberly would say there's always pluses and minuses, but that parts come in pairs and there's polarities where there's light, there's darkness, where there's confidence, there's insecurity as well. I mean, where there's mm-hmm. confidence, there's doubt. So I really appreciate your, your vulnerability, appreciate who you are and what you're about, Connor. Um, excited to follow the rise and what's next. And just want to thank you for your time today. It's been such a pleasure to share this time and space. I've really been looking forward to this one. I look forward to this next chapter in in your life for you and your family. And from one speaker to another, you've got such a strong stage presence. And I just hope you keep landing those those gigs and sharing your story because you have a story worth telling. Uh, I'm grateful for your time today. And I'm confident that this conversation and your story will add value and will uplift and inspire our listeners. So thank you, Connor. Thank you. Appreciate the kind words and, and the uh, and the time. That's a wrap on another episode of the Bounce Forward podcast with nothing but love. I'm Michael Leach. Ride those waves, my friends. Ride those waves. Keep treading water and just don't quit. Until next time, dig deep, lean in, and stay true. That's it for today. 
Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page at beaudacious.com, where you can also dive into my blog, my books, and my performance coaching. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'd love it if you'd leave a review or comment. And if you've got something negative to say, I'd be grateful if you'd give me some grace and shoot me an email as I'm a work in progress, as is this podcast. And please spread the word. Share this episode or any other that resonate with family and friends and let's grow and become our strongest and truest selves together. That's it. Ahoy ho, my friends. I appreciate the love and support. Until next time, head up, eyes forward, feet moving. Fight the good fight. Today's episode is sponsored by Engine 8, a Bozeman, Montana-based advertising agency. Engine 8 works with passionate entrepreneurs and business people to create strong brands that connect products and services to customers in meaningful ways. As a creative agency, Engine 8 helps grow brands through strategy, smart design, and a little bit of magic. Engine 8 is united in their commitment to deliver concrete results that move brands forward. I can attest to the magic of Brad's work, having teamed up with him on countless projects over the years, multiple website builds, book launches, and publicity campaigns. Give them a look at engine8design.com.